Tuesday, July 31st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers, from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Maker. Gentlemen, happy Tuesday. How do you? Hello, hello. Earnings Palooza just rolls along. We've got earnings from BP, Pfizer, and Coach, but we are going to start today with one of the big names in investing, and that's Bill Gross. Uh, For those who may not know, Bill Gross uh, is the co-founder of PIMCO, and he runs the largest bond fund in the world. And in his latest monthly letter, he shares his belief that future stock returns will be lower. And Joe, I'll start with you. I'm not going to read his entire letter, because frankly, we don't have that kind of time. But he basically says, when you factor in the slowing GDP growth, and sort of you look over the last four decades and how we've gotten this historical real return of about six and a half percent in the stock market when you back out inflation, that sort of thing. He basically says that can't happen anymore. That's that's just not going to happen. Um, before we get into what His we mustache. what we should expect, um, what did you think when you saw the letter? I wasn't shocked. I mean, Bill Gross has long been a proponent and PIMCO of this new normal so that the economy has slowed down and that we're not going back to kind of where we were, say, eight, nine years ago. Uh, I do disagree with his take and maybe not surprising. He's a bond guy and I'm a stock guy. But over the last 30 years, this is the first rolling 30-year period where bonds outperformed stocks since the Civil War. I think we're kind of near the top of a bond bubble. You know, we hit a 10-year low, and or we did an all-time low in the 10-year Treasury bond of 1.38%, which is almost a full percentage point below the S&P 500's dividend yield. Uh, when you put that together, it's just really tough to be excited about buying bonds if you're a long-term investor. I mean, to be honest, if you are below the age of 50, I think you'd be a total fool to be buying bonds in any sort of capacity like that, when stocks, to me, seem really attractive selectively. And you see equity risk premiums that are very high. And I don't know. I disagree. Charlie? Uh, I think it's important to use this as a launching point for a conversation of what people should reasonably expect out of their stock performance. Uh, We had a member event last week, and I was talking to one of our members. And he mentioned that at a party, you know, friends were telling him that they expected returns of 15 to 20 percent a year out of their stocks. Uh, That is way too (laughs) aggressive. Out of all of them? Yeah. Uh, and, and, And... you know, so a lot of investors uh, don't really, they, you know, they need a grounding in what stocks can do for them. The historical returns of the S&P are about 10 or 11% a year, uh, which does include inflation, which is different than what Bill Gross was referencing. Yep. Uh, and so I think it's, it's uh, just frame it up a little properly. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, it wasn't surprising to hear this from Bill Gross being a bond guy. Um, and I think that's probably going to be two fundamentally different ways of looking at things if you're an investor in stocks or if you're an investor in bonds. I mean, I, I agree with Joe completely. If you're if you're younger, I think you're a, a little F fool to not be investing in stocks. I mean, the stock market is inherently forward-looking. It's basing uh, – there, there's at least some optimism there that these companies are going to be generating uh, – you know, cash flows in the future, and, and it is it is a point I think worth noting that you it is, you do have to be sort of selective. I mean, you can't just say a blanket statement: all stocks are not going to return. Yep. Uh, some stocks are going to tank, and some stocks are going to do better. And, and obviously, we have a job here to really uh, dig for and find those those outperformers. And, and so, I, I I do believe those outperformers will still exist. Um, if let's just take the the real return. Uh, part of his letter out uh, for a moment and just get back to this whole notion of the new normal. If if he's right on that, if we should have some level of lowered expectations 
of stock returns, whether it's you know whether it's slightly lower, dramatically lower, whatever. Um, does that change your thinking at all in terms of how you invest? Does that make some types of stocks or some industries more attractive to you, or are you still looking at uh, your portfolio the same way in terms of allocations and industries and uh, and that sort of thing? Charlie, what do you think? Uh, I, I use what I call the trifecta approach, and it doesn't really change depending on the environment. I want a clean balance sheet uh, because companies that have too much debt don't control their own destiny. They're beholden to their creditors. I want companies that have growing profits and management with integrity who I feel like is operating the company in my best interest. And I feel if I invest in those kind of companies, I'll do just fine over the long run. Jason? Like Charlie's, except I use a four-pronged approach, Chris. <laughs> And actually, I mean, I, I do. I look the four for <laughs> four factors. I look for management I can trust. I look for businesses that are understandable, um, and I want to see a catalyst, whether it's a short-term catalyst or a long-term trend that's going to create value. And and then I want to make sure I'm getting it at a fair price. And I think if you can fulfill those four uh, requirements, then your chances of success are, are going to be better. Uh, Joe, while you're, well, I use a five tool <laughs> process. No, you don't. Oh, I love one upping. Uh, all those things. Plus, I've really become a big fan lately. Of, not to sound obvious, but I'm looking for businesses that can reinvest in themselves at high rates of return and hopefully for a long time. There aren't a lot of companies that can do that, unfortunately. But the ones that can are nice exceptions. So, like a Visa or a Mastercard are names I really like that can achieve that. Whereas some that are really interesting businesses, like Expeditors International, which we were just talking about for the show, wonderful business, but doesn't have many reinvestment opportunities. And lately, I've been kind of adding that fifth layer on to <laughs> the weak work that those guys do, but just to you know, screen out ideas a little bit the more The sync effect. Uh, all right. There you go. For our listeners out there, you got the trifecta, the four-factor. I want to go last next time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shares of BP down 4% Tuesday morning after what Forbes called a terrible quarter. Net loss of $1.4 billion. Joe, that, that actually does sound pretty terrible. It does. A lot of that... <laughs> it does sound pretty you know, Now that you mention it, uh, you know... As usual, when you hear about a gaudy loss for a large company like that, there's some sort of one-time or non-cash charge. And in this case, BP got tagged with writing down some of the value of its U.S. shale gas assets. Uh, U.S. natural gas prices have been in the tank, and a lot of natural gas companies or lease owners are having to write down the value of that. So that's not all that unusual. And they've had a lot of other costs related to improving their safety, and that's a good thing. As far as I'm concerned, BP is a terrible track record with safety beyond the Macondo incident. There's a long laundry list of problems they've had. So, you know, it's good that they're getting that in order. A lot of the, you know, write-downs were one-off in nature. And if natural gas prices come back, some of that might ultimately get marked up in a way that's maybe not marked up, but will flow back through the financials in a, an accretive, valuable way. Accretive? Boy, those are good. I know, I'm getting really analysty here. Sorry. Um, it seems like we've been talking for a while uh, about natural gas prices and how low they are, and it seems like we, this is you know we're about to close out yet w- any day now <laughs> yet another month where we're saying hey when like what what is it going to take I mean because it seems like as we've talked in the past that the reserves on natural gas are so enormous that if you're making a bet on natural gas it kind of seems like you need to be even more patient. Uh, with something like that than with other investments to pay off. I'm not saying that it won't pay off, 
but it just seems like if you're if you're making a bet on natural gas today, you really need to have a good five, ten year time horizon. Is that fair? I'd say so. I mean, there, if there's a law of gravity with commodities, that's the price of a commodity ultimately gravitates towards its marginal cost of production. And right now in the U.S., it costs anywhere from say four to six dollars to produce natural gas, and we're down around three bucks today. You know, eventually the math shakes out on that, and production comes offline, which is exactly what's starting to happen in the U.S. So there'll be less gas coming, and eventually we'll see prices pop. And you know, we're seeing that story unfold, but it hasn't happened as quickly as I think a lot of us, self-included, expected. Jason, I think natural think? gas bulls need to be pulling for two things: really crazy weather and uh, the success of America's natural gas highway. And so if you have really crazy weather, then these power companies are going to need more natural gas to fuel the power in order for people to get air conditioning for the crazy hot summers and heat for the crazy cold winters. And then if T. Boone Pickens has his way and clean energy fuels gets America's natural uh, natural gas highway uh, up and running, I think that the trucking industry stands to really, the, d- the demand created from the trucking industry could, could certainly prop up prices going forward. Is Steve Boone Pickens paying you? <laughs> yeah. I'm just checking. Sound like a shill. <laughs> um, I want to ask you guys about uh, a comment that I read in relation to BP's earnings, and that was one analyst who called the results this quarter a shocker. And that that struck me because it seems like companies, on average, I mean, at one end of the spectrum, you've got a company like Apple, which historically has been great at managing expectations, you know, lowering them throughout the quarter. Low-balling. Low-balling, and then then jumping over that that low bar. Uh, But it seems like most companies do some job of managing guidance. Why is this such a shocker? Is this guy just really bad at his job? I was going to say, is this the only guy that called it a shocker? I mean, he just sounds like he might be a little out of touch. Well, okay. So if if, if that's the case, then where do you guys stand on companies offering guidance? Would you, you know, do you like to see uh, like a Berkshire Hathaway just say, you know what, we're not going to offer any guidance whatsoever? Or, or would you, as an analyst, Charlie, would you rather see a company provide guidance? How much do you factor that in when you're trying to make an investment decision? In general, I would prefer no guidance because I want the company to be managed for its long-term health and not for quarterly or even annual numbers. Uh, that said, if they are going to do it, I would like it to be limited to factors within their control, such as how much they're going to spend. Uh, if you get into areas such as revenue in a commodity business that is highly variable based on prices moving up and down, uh, that's less useful, and I don't fault them for getting that kind of stuff wrong. Jason, what about you? Yeah, the guidance thing drives me nuts. I mean, I like understanding just the general direction of where they're taking the business initiatives, uh, focuses on creating value and whatnot. But when you start getting down to the penny, we're going to earn six fifty four in, in you know in, in earnings per share every. I mean, that to me just drives me nuts. It's predicting the future. It's impossible to sustain, and that's why you get all of those crazy movements. Well, I'll take the four things they mentioned and just <laughs> layer on a fifth one. Uh, <laughs> sense of uh, theme here. Yeah, but I I do like those responses and just specifically to. to add to Charlie's, what I would prefer, if I had a choice of getting great insights from management about the blood and guts of their strategy or guidance, I would much rather have the strategy and be able to work off of that rather than guidance that I know is going to be flawed. Shares of Pfizer up 3% midday after improved second quarter earnings. Uh, Charlie, we had talked in the past about Lipitor, uh, their blockbuster drug, coming off patent. And uh, I mean, what's the story here? Is there, are they just not taking as big a hit off of that as we expected? Sure, Chris. That's the best-selling drug of all time for cholesterol. Uh, they lost a number of other drugs as well to uh, patent expirations. And when that happens, uh, generic 
equivalents can come in and sales quickly evaporate. Uh, and so they lost a billion eight total from all of these patent expirations. And so their total revenue was down 9%. Yet, as you mentioned, it was a pretty good quarter overall. Uh, they cost-cut their way to prosperity. They took expenses down across the board, and uh, the bottom line was actually up 25%. It's a heck of a feat if you can pull that off. That also seems like a, a feat that can't be sustained quarter after quarter. Well, no, it can't. Uh, but it is a necessary step to uh, retrench on the sales force and some of the R&D spend when you lose a drug as big as Lipitor. Uh, further down in, in the news with respect to Pfizer was this uh, story about how they're going to be spinning off one of their units for an IPO later this year. Um, right. what, what, what is the story there? So if, if you go back in time a few years before Pfizer acquired Wyeth, uh, they were going to retrench the business around areas they could be innovative and divest non-core businesses like their nutrition business and animal health. So they're finally getting around to divesting the animal health business, which is actually a very profitable business. They did $7 billion in revenue last year and $2 billion in operating profit. So uh, by the middle of next month, they're going to file for an IPO and in 2013, they're going to spin off 20% of the shares. And if that is successful, which I imagine it will be, uh, they'll eventually get rid of the rest later and make Pfizer a pure play drug company. So uh, maybe not as well-known or as sexy as the Facebook IPO, but but sounds like one to watch for next year. Well, yeah, absolutely. The animal health business, you know, if you're getting a heartworm medicine or flea and tick medicine or any medicine for your pets when they get sick, uh, this is a very niche, highly profitable business, as anyone who's a pet owner knows. You're paying a lot of money when you go to the vet. Um, we were talking before we started taping. You look at these big pharmaceutical companies, and it seems like you know every quarter or so, whether it's Pfizer or Merck or Bristol Myers Squibb or any any one of the big ones, it, it it seems like there are these acquisitions that are just getting made year after year, snapping up some of the smaller uh, pharmaceutical companies, some of the niche drug players, um, and now we have this news about this spinoff for Pfizer. Um, it, Charlie, as someone who watches this industry, where is it going in terms of, you know, if, if we believe that to a large degree, the era of the blockbuster drug is, is over uh, to a large extent, um, where is the, the growth for these companies going to come, for these big pharma companies? Is it going to come from, like, continuing the acquisition space? Is it going to be the spinoffs, or is it going to be something else? Uh, the biggest trend you're seeing out of companies like GlaxoSmithKline and Novartis is playing up the importance of the emerging markets. Historically, the big drug markets have been the rich countries of the world. Uh, everywhere out of Europe, Japan, and the United States, uh, that trend is changing because the regulatory barriers to getting new drugs on the market are so high. And so to grow, these companies are looking to places like Brazil and China, which have rapidly growing economies and underserved populations. Joe? Yeah, that's smart. Unfortunately, I think a lot of these guys are going to keep trying to acquire their way forward, which is what Pfizer did with Wyeth. And like I was saying earlier, I'm much more interested in businesses that can reinvest in themselves. And, you know, when a business can't do that, it's important they be able to trust management to do right by shareholders by either paying out a lot of dividends or buying back shares at a good price. And, you know, unfortunately, most CEOs can't you know, have that discipline. Instead, it's a lot easier to go out and make a big acquisition and keep your empire growing instead of 
know, managing the business for shareholders. Shares of Coach down more than 17% Tuesday morning after the company's fourth quarter sales came in lower than expected. Uh, Jason, the company also said that over the, said that the next year, the next fiscal year, is going to be an investment year. That's their <laughs> phrase, um, which of course means they're going to be spending more uh, in terms of their online operations, that sort of thing. This is a company you watch closely. What do you think of the quarter? It is, yeah. I think that when you hear management say that the coming year is going to be an investment year, that is code for everybody on the street to exit at once. And that's what you're seeing today is I think they look at this as, as potentially, I don't know if they see it as dead money for the next year, but but certainly one where economic growth is slowing and they're going to be spending. But I think that in, in many cases, you know, we need to look at this kind of a situation as foolish investors. And with a company like Coach that's led by Lou, Lou Frankfurt, CEO and chairman there uh, since 1995, uh, this is one of those opportunities, I think, that, that could really present itself as, as a legitimate buying opportunity. I mean, the company is still fundamentally very sound. And, and a lot of what they're doing in this investment for the future is very good. In other words, they're accelerating uh, this program to become more vertical. They're buying up key distributors in Asia where they're seeing a lot of their growth. And, and yes, North American sales were really what uh, <clears throat> hindered growth this quarter. Uh, but I think that the company itself is, is still in good working order. And not only that, it's, it's a relatively shareholder-friendly company. I mean, looking back just over the past few years, they continue to buy back shares. And the share count's down actually 23% over the last five years. And and the recently uh, in- initiated dividend, just a few years now, is a uh, total amount of dividends paid is up over 150, 150% since 2010. Uh, so it's a company that's doing a lot of good things, a unique, a little bit more of a luxury brand, but it still could be coined as affordable luxury, I think, in many cases. Um, I know that. I don't know. I think if Chipotle is, is affordable, like <laughs> my wife is certainly very, uh, yeah. very, a very big fan of of Coach. But uh, you know, I think I think it's a very popular brand out there that over the over the long haul will still do well. Uh, we saw a little bit of a ripple effect this morning with some of the other stocks in the luxury category. Tiffany Fossil both down yep. three four percent this morning. Uh, um, the luxury goods have kind of had a good run in terms of their stock performance, in terms of their industry over the last couple of years. Are we seeing a slowdown? Is this, or is this more just about this one quarter for Coach? What do no, you think? I think we are seeing a slowdown. But Tiffany's another one that I follow, and and even you know last quarter and the quarter before that, Tiffany management was very clear in revising guidance downward because of slowing economic conditions. So it's not a surprise to see this. It's not something new uh, that, that we're seeing a slowdown in economic activity. But I do think these luxury brands, while they're susceptible to to slowdowns, they're also somewhat protected in their brand power. I mean, folks like their coach and folks like their Tiffany, and while they may not be buying as much of it uh, when things are a little bit slower, they are still protected by that brand power for, for uh, longer-term investors. Do you have a go-to luxury brand for your wife? Joe, we're, not, start- we're not really that far along in our, in our marriage to. I dare you to say Chipotle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want to surprise her for a birthday or something like that, is there like a go-to sort of like, ah, oh, you know, this is, this is kind of a big deal. Well, I'm gonna- we've only been married for a couple months here. Coming, you should have known. Call me, call ago. me crazy. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking you might actually make it to the the first anniversary. Did you I, say I she was the one that listened to this podcast? I bought. I bought her ring, uh, the engagement ring on Blue Nile, and we were very happy with it. So nice. I would be open to giving them business again. Uh, Jason, what about you? Oddly enough, Coach and Tiffany are two real go-tos. Charlie? Uh, so we're actually hitting our 12-year mark this, nice. this weekend. Yeah, clap, clap, clap. 
Um, and I think I'll get her something from Anthropology because that's her favorite store. That's her favorite store. And she doesn't listen to this. No. So she's no. fine. That's fine. All right. Charlie Travers, Joe Mager, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I mean, you're, you're, you're like, you're speeding past Bill Barker in terms of, <laughs> I'm going to say things that will just well, annoy, <laughs> and I'm going to say things that will just, just piss Bark- my wife Bark- off. Barker's the, guy that was, Barker's the guy that wanted to get a robot to read a story to his yeah. kids at night. What was it? That was, that was, that was the No, no, no. It was the, you know, in response to the... What, what's a luxury brand that, that you know that you buy for your wife? His initial response is, "I haven't been married that long." It's like, <laughs> when you say it again, it's like, "I didn't say anything about buying her presents." If we make it till tomorrow, wow! <laughs> oh my God, I've got the mics open. Do I save all this? Yes. <laughs>